without sounding over dramatic. I mean, I think like our democracy is at stake in a in a way. Uh, if we don't teach these skills, then people don't really realize how uh, the systems work and how their their own psychology works. So that's how disinformation spreads. Um, when disinformation spreads, then it influences our policies and that that could spiral very quickly. So I mean, I don't like I said, I don't want to sound over dramatic, but um, I do think these skills are essential to keeping our country going in a way. I'm Nikki Herda, and this is Bright, stories of hope and innovation in Michigan classrooms, a podcast where we celebrate our state's educators and explore the future of learning. Bright is brought to you in part by Mimic Insurance Company, insuring the educational community for more than 70 years. Teachers and school employees visit mimic.com slash quote to see how much you can save. In today's episode of Bright, I chat with James Johnson, a social studies teacher at Loy Norix High School in Kalamazoo, Michigan. James was honored as a 2021 to 22 Regional Teacher of the Year representing Southwest Michigan. James digs into why digital literacy skills are critical for a flourishing democracy, offers examples of how he teaches these skills in his classroom, and shares three tried and true tips for his fellow educators. Well, James, it's awesome to have you on the Bright Podcast today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Yeah. Happy to be here. So this season, we're kicking off by asking everybody, can you tell me about the most interesting project that you're doing in your classroom right now? Right now, my current event students have been working on a service learning project where they are investigating an issue of their choice that impacts our community. Uh, and they're creating a hypothetical action plan for like how they could get involved with that issue. Cool. Uh, to address it. Yeah. And my U.S. history classes did a project about civil rights activists from the 1950s through 70s um, in which they're recommending individual leaders who they felt should be featured on U.S. currency, which was inspired by the um, recent U.S. Treasury quarter series honoring uh, women from history. Um, so that was pretty cool. And my AP students who took their exam last month, uh, we do two projects once their exams are done. One is a uh, film project where they're analyzing popular Hollywood films from history and reflecting on how kind of we view history differently across time. Um, and another one, which is they're picking like a specific topic from history and creating an original presentation. Very cool. I like the way, you know, it seems very clear that you're taking your history curriculum and, you know, connecting it both to like your community and to current events in a way that probably keeps students more engaged, you know, and seeing the relevance to their own lives. Yeah, that's one of the goals. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, can you tell me about a moment that you vividly remember falling in love with education? Yeah. Um, Growing up, I always felt like school got kind of like a bad rap in cartoons and whatnot. So, like, I kept waiting for school to be like torture, like they made it out to be, yeah. uh, or something. And that never really happened in my experience. Um, I've always had fun learning new things. Uh, and, you know, you get to see friends at school, so that's a bonus. Uh, but I was, I was definitely also blessed with some great teachers that made learning fun. Um, and I guess I really fell in love with education as a profession by the time I got to college. Uh, as a psych major, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and took an intro to education class. Um, and I remember 
there's a, a John Dewey quote that we learned in class. Um, Education is a process of living and not a preparation for future living. Uh, and that really stuck with me and spoke to me. It really shaped kind of my philosophy on education and inspired me to become a teacher. Hmm. What does that, would you tell me a little bit more about what that quote means yeah. to you? Um, you know, the process of living, not a future living? Yeah, I think it, it, to me it just uh, shows the value of like being a lifelong learner and the education isn't just sitting in a school and being told things that you have to remember and be tested on, but you're coming to school, you're learning skills, and then those help you learn more skills later in life because the education never stops once you leave school. So today we are going to talk about three ways to bring uh, digital literacy into your classroom. But yeah. first, I'd just like to unpack some key terms and just hear a little bit about why this matters so much to you and why this okay. is, um, you know, I think you kind of picked this theme. Like this was one that spoke to your heart. So yes. first off, I'd just like to ask, what does digital literacy mean to you and why do you think it's so important? Well, I often use digital literacy and media literacy um, kind of interchangeably. Sure. Uh, most, most media is digitized now anyway. Uh, so to me, they both kind of mean like being able to read and understand a variety of forms of digital media and to use those in their lives. Um, so digital media can be a simple online article, a YouTube video, social media, etc. cetera. Uh, but students need to have those skills so they can be accurately informed, uh, be responsible citizens, and so on. Um, Sam Weinberg is a historian from Stanford University, and he founded uh, called the Stanford History Education Group, or SHEG, and he's written books about historical thinking that are used in like teacher ed programs. Uh, he also created a website called Civic Online Reasoning, uh, on which he wrote, reliable information is to civic health what clean water and proper sanitation are to public health. Uh, he talked about never has so much information been at our fingertips as it is today, whether this bounty will make us smarter and more informed or more ignorant and narrow-minded will depend on one thing, our educational response to this challenge. Um, I use his website, the Civic Online Reasoning, a lot in my current events classes. Um, they have pre-made lessons for teachers about the sources of information, the types of evidence that websites provide, uh, and how to read laterally is what they call it, uh, which means like opening new tabs and fact-checking claims that people make online. Mm. Yeah, I can definitely understand, especially just with everything going on in our world right now. You know, why specifically, you know, that would this would be a topic of interest in education and why uh, information literacy, you know, is so important, especially for teaching our future generations, like how to engage with each other. Um, so thank you for the work that you do. Of course, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on how the COVID-19 pandemic affected the need to teach students digital literacy skills? Yes, uh, many thoughts on that. Uh, so my school district was one of the few that stayed virtual for the whole 2020, uh, 2021 school year. Um, I know some other districts did part and then came back or did hybrid models, but we were virtual for the whole year. Um, and so my district worked with local organizations and companies to transition for every student to be able to have like their own Chromebook and um, internet access. We set up 
remote learning hubs for students uh, who still needed it or needed like a quiet space to learn. Uh, but this, of course, also opened up new challenges, many new challenges, like how students self-regulate when they're like at home with no teacher sure. or parent to yeah. keep them on <laughs> on task. Um, with, you know, no physical presence, somebody there to hold them accountable. Uh, they had a lot more freedom in ways besides just managing their time because uh, now they also had unlimited access pretty much or near near unlimited access with a few you know school blocked websites um, to pretty much any information at their fingertips. So it was a lot harder to regulate that in age appropriate ways for us teachers uh, when we're not in the same space. Um, not only that, but COVID also being itself a huge source of political disagreement uh, that brought lots of disinformation about the COVID virus how to treat the COVID virus. Uh, and one thing we know about social media and the internet is these programs have computer algorithms that learn about us and our preferences and then cater those digital experiences to match our patterns. So if someone starts gravitating towards disinformation um, or misinformation, they can very quickly kind of wind up in like a feedback loop uh, or echo chamber, as I often say. So they, they need the digital literacy skills then to evaluate information. Um, I remember reading a book on echo chambers. I think it was by Eli Parsons, <laughs> I want to say the guy's name is. And yeah, both fascinating and absolutely terrifying. Um, right. You know, just the idea of seeing totally different realities in our social media feeds. and. Um, yes. So it makes complete sense to me that teaching students the skills to realize even first and foremost that no matter who you are, you are likely to be in one of these echo chambers depending on what the algorithm is feeding you based on your previous interests is. Yeah. Yeah. And even where to, you live, yeah. even where you live, like it, people can live in different places and get different um, like pre-populated Google searches once you start typing like climate change is and then depending on where you live it'll you know suggest a different uh, phrase to finish that thought or COVID is or you know whatever you're searching for. Um, so you do a lot of work with digital literacy skills you know with your students it sounds like. Um, could you tell me a story about a time that you saw a student benefit from learning digital literacy skills? I know that's like kind of a big question, but just any sort of little, you know, anecdote that kind of just illuminates the importance of these kind of topics in students' lives. Yeah, my brain at this point in the year is a little fuzzy on, on some specifics here at the end of this marathon, but um, I was thinking about like the skill of corroboration, one of the most basic like digital literacy skills that we teach, looking at multiple different sources of information. Um, and we do this in history lessons all the time. Uh, students are given multiple perspectives about an event and they may have to like reconcile those viewpoints, um, especially if they're conflicting. So I've seen this in practice uh, then when we're like working on a project and students are required to use multiple sources of information for research. They then have to consider kind of what is left out uh, as much as what's included. And we've had some good discussions uh, in these classes when we've done like that civil rights project I was talking about before multiple students picked maybe the same individual. Um, and so we could go and compare their final products and talk about like what was left out on these different sources that you used for your poster. Uh, why was it maybe left out or presented the way it was? 
I mean, it's in our nature to kind of like defend our position, whether it's something serious like a political debate or uh, something sillier or more entertaining. So in my current events classes also, uh, every week they have to find two articles on any topic uh, that they want to, um, topic or topics, they could pick multiple. So I have students that look up like the NBA playoffs, what's going on with that? And then I have students reading about the abortion case leak, like, uh, and everything in between. range there, yeah. Yeah. Um, When that Supreme Court decision about abortion leaked a few weeks ago, I made them find articles specifically about that topic, and they had to be from different points of view for that assignment. Uh, And I hear students talking about, like, biases, um, who the sources of information were, whether they were qualified to give the perspective on the topic, all those good things. Hmm. Do you see students, like, when they're forced to kind of go through and look at different sides, do you see some surprising reactions or, like, you know, um, from the students in those kinds of activities? I mean, I think a lot of these, like, skills that we practice in school like that are, uh, they're almost, like, kind of innate for this generation of students, I want to say. Like, a lot of these things they do without even realizing that they're doing them, um, more so than older generations who didn't grow up with these changing technologies. So uh, sometimes it's just like kind of putting a, a word to it, I guess, or breaking down that process. But um, yeah, a lot of them do it already. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I can definitely see that. Okay, one more question before we dig in. Sure. I, I think the quote, that you mentioned at the beginning from the Stanford researcher, yeah, you know, starts to hint at this. But what, in your personal opinion, is the risk of not bringing digital literacy into the classroom? That's a great question. Um, I think that, without sounding over dramatic, I mean, I think like our democracy is at stake in a in a way. Uh, if we don't teach these skills, then people don't really realize how. Uh, the systems work and how their their own psychology works. So that's how disinformation spreads. Um, when disinformation spreads, then it influences our policies, and that that could spiral very quickly. So I mean, I don't like I said, I don't want to sound over dramatic, but um, I do think these skills are essential to keeping our country going in a way. I'm Nikki Herda, and you're listening to Bright Stories of Hope. And innovation in Michigan classrooms. Bright is brought to you in part by Mimic Insurance Company, ensuring the educational community for more than 70 years. Teachers and school employees visit mimic.com quote to see how much you can save. Today, I'm chatting with James Johnson, a social studies teacher at Loy Norix High School in Kalamazoo, Michigan, who is honored as a 2021 to 22 Regional Teacher of the Year. Up next, we dive into James' top three tips for bringing digital literacy into your classroom. All right, do you want to dig into your top three tips for bringing digital literacy into the classroom? I do, yes. Yay. So okay. uh, my, f- my first one is uh, every good teacher knows the value of routines. So number one is routines. Uh, for anything teachers are trying to do, we have routines for behavior, for homework, classwork, discussions, tests, everything. So the most important thing to introducing digital literacy into the classroom is to make something, make it something that's simple 
uh, and routine that's easy for you to apply and, and adapt no matter what the lesson or unit's about. Um, an easy routine I have, for example, is like when we're analyzing primary source materials in my history classes, we use the acronym SOAPS, uh, S-O-A-P-S, which stands for Sourcing, Occasion, Audience, Purpose, and Subject. Um, it's a little tedious depending on the specific like historical artifact we're looking at, but it builds good habits for students that hopefully they can apply when they're doing their own research for class or just engaging with information outside of school. Um, I know of other similar acronyms that teachers use to help students build these same kind of habits. And if the routine is modeled and it's reinforced throughout the year, then students expect it. Um, they know what you expect and they become quite quick with it. Uh, in current events, I use three questions from that civic online reasoning website. Um, and those three questions are who's behind the information, what's the evidence, and what do other sources say about that information? Um, and I start out making students write these answers when they're reading something for class, and then the more they get used to it, we pull back and we just can talk about them together because they're routine. I can imagine, you know, at the beginning, if you start out with that, you said SOAPS, right, S-O-A-P-S. Yep. You know, it starts out, and you pr they probably have to think about every single step and remember what, you know, oh, what does the O stand for? But by yep. the end, I imagine, you know, it's so ingrained um, because it's become routine that they probably start to do it without even consciously thinking about the acronym anymore. Is that in line with the experience that you've seen? Definitely, yes. Um, same with my AP students. We use different acronyms, but uh, it's the same thing. Like I have to really teach that and then use a rubric and really highlight, like, here's where you're doing this early on. And, like, did you do it right? And then by the end, like, they're all pros at it because they've been doing it all year. And um, like you said, they, they, if they expect it, uh, they don't always even realize that they're doing it. They just know, like, they're in the habit of looking for those things. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, is your hope that that it becomes so ingrained that they start to take this outside the walls of the classroom um, and start thinking in this way about the sources that they're engaging with in their personal and or later professional lives? Absolutely. Uh, and I know that can happen because that's what's happened with me since I started teaching. Oh. Um, like these habits are things then that I use. When, like, And I know my own biases. So when I'm scrolling through Twitter and <laughs> finding myself in that echo chamber, uh, it's a it's pretty quick little reminder like oh no you got to kind of practice what you you preach uh, and <laughs> pull back a little bit ask those questions awesome uh, do you want to lead us into your second tip I do my second tip I just gave it away is practice what you preach <laughs> uh, and so you know I think by now we all engage with some sort of digital media or, or social media um, we aren't exempt from the algorithms or our own psychology. Um, we're just as prone to disinformation or misinformation as our students are. So, you know, it's just like it's good teaching practice to model a new skill or a concept in front of the class. It's also good practice to keep ourselves in check in our private lives. Um, because whether we realize it or not, our own biases do make their way into our teaching and uh, we need to be responsible digital citizens first if we expect our students to be responsible digital citizens. Yeah, I mean, that's entirely fair. Um, I wonder, uh, is that something that you like talk about with your students at all? Like the way that you 
you know, this impacts your life and the ways that you're intentional about practicing this personally as well? Yeah, definitely. We talk about it. Um, teachers are always giving like personal anecdotes to try to make whatever they're teaching relevant. So that those are often mine. It's like, well, here's what I read on Twitter last night. Like, <laughs> let's talk about it. Um, and maybe I noticed that I was finding myself like getting really fired up about whatever I was reading. And so I had to click on who was tweeting that and find out who they were and, you know, maybe read some other stuff they've written before to see if they're bringing any bias into it. All right. Tip number three. Uh, yeah. My third tip would be don't reinvent the wheel. Uh, there are already lots of websites and companies who are doing this kind of work and making materials to help students develop these digital literacy skills. And a lot of it's free. Um, I've mentioned civic online reasoning a few times already. They have teacher and student materials you can download. I just need to make an account. Um, just a few weeks ago, I found a free resource from Maryland Public Television through PBS. And they have online tutorials called research learning modules that teach students how to do research online. Uh, yeah, things like uh, telling the difference between types of information, like primary and secondary sources. Uh, and so whenever I have an idea for something I want to try in my classroom, I assume I'm not the first person that's had that idea. And so before I spend a lot of time making a lot of new things, I'll just spend a few minutes trying to find what others have already created that I can use or modify for my students. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything... Uh else that you want to say about digital literacy or anything that we might have missed? Uh, I just emphasize, I guess, the importance of it again. Like, I'm a, obviously a social studies teacher, so it's maybe especially relevant for me with the type of material we get into, but I think probably any subject matter can find you know, space for it. Um, I'm not an expert in those other subject matters, so I won't speculate on what that could look like and tell somebody else how to do their job. But uh, I do think that students need things reinforced and whether it's like at the building level or something or the district level, but you know, schools need to maybe communicate a bit more than we currently do because I hardly see any other teachers in the building throughout the day. I see the people right next door to me. We're in our own four walls all day long, but I'm a huge fan of any opportunity to, to collaborate and like share ideas so that we can all be on the same page. Yeah, finding ways for teachers to be able to share strategies with one another and make those connections is also very important. So, Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, do you want to tell us about a teacher who had a positive impact on your life when you were growing up? I would love to, yeah. Um, when I was a student, my favorite teacher was one of my high school English teachers. Her name was Mrs. Hall. Last I heard, she's now the principal at the school I went to. Um, and she inspired curiosity in her students, is what I remember. Uh, she modeled a genuine love of learning. And at the end of our senior year, she gave us each individual awards based on the kind of student that we were. Um, I got the Socrates Award, I still remember, because I was. she thought I was so curious, always questioned everything. Um, and so when I decided to become a teacher, I wanted to be like her. I remember being a student and wanting to impress her and show her how much I'd learned when I, whenever I wrote my essays. Uh, and she was just really positive, but like still had really high expectations. So it was like she all expected us to be geniuses or something. And I don't remember ever like wanting to avoid any activities in her class. 
Um, and I don't remember other students being like avoidant either. We were all just, you know, she, she was so kind and genuine. It seemed like we all wanted to live up to those expectations she had for us. Um, and now that I'm a teacher myself, I've been inspired by many of my colleagues and friends. Uh, when I started teaching my, you know, my first year here, I was fortunate to find a group of teachers uh, right away who kind of mentored me in different ways and just gave me an outlet when things got tough. And that was so valuable. Uh, lot of, lots of teachers are really good at looking out for each other because we know what it's like. And we know how hard it is for a school to lose good teachers. So uh, in my professional career, I try to you know, learn from those that mentored me and, uh, and be a good teammate in turn, friend to others. Without a doubt, it's challenging work to help students navigate the seas of information and misinformation constantly available at their fingertips. But with leaders like James forging our path forward, if there's one thing we're certain of, it's that the future is bright. Do you know someone who's an inspiring Michigan educator who should be featured on our show? Send us an email at bright at michiganvirtual.org to let us know who they are and why we should interview them. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bright, stories of hope and innovation in Michigan classrooms. This podcast is produced by Herbie Gaylord, is hosted by me, Nikki Herta, and is shaped by many of our passionate and talented colleagues. Big thanks to Krista Green, Holly Bolesky, Terrence Wilkerson, Anna Arenberry, Sarah Hill, and Brandon Batista for their contributions to this episode. Bright is brought to you in part by Mimic Insurance Company, ensuring the educational community for more than 70 years. Teachers and school employees visit mimic.com quote to see how much you can save. The Bright Podcast is made possible by Michigan Virtual, a nonprofit organization that's leading and collaborating to build learning environments for tomorrow. Education is changing faster than ever. Discover new models and resources to move learning forward at your school at michiganvirtual.org.